This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. This week we have an episode of America Looks Abroad, presented by NBC in cooperation with the American Foreign Policy Association. America Looks Abroad aired in various formats over NBC and local stations from 1939 to 1941. This episode first aired on October 5th, 1941. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help to continue to produce the podcast. And thanks to those of you who have already donated. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. America Looks Abroad. This is the 96th in a series of broadcasts presented by the staff members of the Foreign Policy Association, a nonpartisan organization which seeks to present objective analyses, accurate information on world affairs. Today's subject is What is Left of United States Neutrality? Mr. A. Randall Elliott, Research Associate of the Foreign Policy Association, is the speaker. Mr. Elliott. Thank you. Government leaders in Washington are about to make another momentous decision on American foreign policy. All last month, Congress and the administration discussed the problems of United States neutrality with the object of bringing our legal position toward the war into conformity with the actual position this country has assumed. The Neutrality Acts of 1935 to 39 were, on the whole, a result of the isolationist sentiment which swept over the nation in the middle 30s. They were originally designed for the sole purpose of keeping the United States out of war. Today, this country still hopes to remain at peace, but it has become unmistakably clear that this goal is no longer the single or even the chief determinant of American foreign policy. As Congress prepares to vote on the current $6 billion lease-lend and defense appropriation bill, critics and supporters of the measure alike realize that this country is now committed to prevent a German victory. The program of aid to Britain and its allies has led to many modifications of the Neutrality Acts since the outbreak of war in September 1939, and some authorities have seriously raised the question whether the neutrality measures might not, in the long run, go far toward bringing us into war rather than keep us at peace. The neutrality legislation, they point out, was at best a negative approach to the protection of American interests. And in practice, it has helped the military success of those countries which are most likely to threaten American security. 
No action on the neutrality issue is expected until the second lease-lend appropriation is out of the way. But the lines are already forming for a major conflict over foreign policy. President Roosevelt has not yet stated whether he will ask Congress to repeal the Neutrality Act or merely request that the statute be amended. Senator McKellar of Tennessee has placed before Congress a bill calling for outright repeal, and other prominent government leaders, such as Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox, have repeatedly come out in favor of such a move. The administration's position, however, was probably best indicated last week in the strongly worded plea of Senator Tom Connolly, chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, who spoke for piecemeal revision of the act. Since the forces who oppose any change in the law constitute a small minority in Congress, it may be expected that our existing neutrality legislation will either be revised or entirely abandoned. In discussing the basic problem of adapting our statutes to present needs, certain questions of fact have been raised regarding traditional American neutrality and the present status of the Neutrality Act of 1939. How much of our neutrality legislation, for example, has been repealed or nullified since the start of the European War? What provisions are still in effect? When the war broke out in September 1939, we had two types of neutrality legislation in force. First, we had the series of statutes adopted between 1794 and 1917, which embodied the traditional ideas of neutral rights and duties. The second type of legislation was contained in the Neutrality Act passed by Congress since 1935. By the terms of the earlier laws, the United States undertook to treat all belligerents impartially. It restricted the use of its ports to belligerent warships, prohibited the use of its territory by foreign troops, and denied any official assistance to the countries at war. In return for these obligations, the United States demanded respect for its citizens and their property on the high seas and retained the right to trade with belligerents as well as with neutrals. Thus, under the early statutes and in accordance with accepted international law, American citizens were free to sell arms and ammunition to countries at war. The neutrality legislation of the 1930s, however, followed in the wake of Senator Nye's munitions investigations. And at that time, you'll recall, it was popularly assumed that bank loans and the sale of munitions to the Allies in the last war had led the United States to enter the conflict in 1917. Consequently, at the outbreak of the Second World War, Americans were forbidden to export arms, ammunitions, and implements of war to any of the belligerents, or to any neutral country for transshipment to a belligerent. They were not permitted to lend money or extend credits to any belligerent power or its agents. With a few exceptions to be determined by the president, it became unlawful for American citizens to travel aboard belligerent vessels. American ships were prohibited from carrying war materials to any of the warring powers and were not allowed to be armed. The Neutrality Act of 1939, passed by Congress two months after the present conflict started, imposed even further limitations on the exercise of traditional neutrality rights. Although this measure eliminated the ban against shipment of munitions to belligerents, it required the president to establish combat zones into which no American citizen or vessel might enter. Its cash and carry provision necessitated the transfer of ownership to a foreign government or national before any articles, warlike or not, might be exported from the United States. The same provision stipulated that no American vessel might carry passengers or any articles to belligerent.
these self-imposed restrictions temporarily waived the full enjoyment of traditional American rights, such as freedom of the seas, for which the United States went to war in 1812 and 1917. The preamble of the 1939 Act, however, specifically reserved all rights and privileges under international law. So when President Roosevelt reasserted the doctrine of freedom of the seas four months ago, he served notice on the world that the United States had safeguarded and intends to protect its rights. In his two proclamations of September 5, 1939, the President drew a sharp distinction between the traditional and the modern forms of neutrality. His first pronouncement set forth some 28 regulations to be observed within the jurisdiction of the United States in conformity with domestic law and practice. Among the rules invoked were the customary prohibitions against enlistment in the armed forces of nations at war, fitting out of or arming belligerent vessels, and furnishing supplies to belligerent warships. Many of these restrictions were swept away with the passage of the Leasland Act, which automatically canceled all existing legislation contrary to its provisions. Subsequent executive orders and presidential proclamations have annulled at least 25 of the 28 regulations. Enforcement of the modern neutrality has also undergone significant changes during the war. Congress has not directly amended any part of the existing law since the repeal of the arms embargo in October 1939. But, in effect, it nullified the prohibition on loans and credits by permitting, under the Lease-Lend Act, the transfer of defense materials and services to countries resisting aggression. Other provisions have since been relaxed by executive rules and regulations. In this category were the removal last spring of restrictions on the use of American ports by foreign warships and Secretary Hull's authorization a few weeks ago of travel by American citizens on belligerent vessels. But aside from these and a few additional modifications which we'll discuss later, the Neutrality Act of 1939 remains unchanged and its legal restrictions are still in force. Three main prohibitions of the Act are now in open conflict with the purposes of the Lease-Lend Program and the declared policy of the United States government. First, no American ships may carry passengers or cargo to any belligerent. Because of this provision, goods brought across the Pacific from the Far East must be transferred from American vessels to Allied or to other neutral ships before proceeding to Great Britain. Oil from our Gulf ports and from South America must similarly be pumped from American to British, Norwegian, or Dutch tankers. Under the second remaining prohibition, no American vessel is permitted to enter combat areas defined by the President. Because of this restriction, the United States Navy can protect shipping for Britain only as far as Iceland, and American merchantmen cannot unload cargoes in neutral Ireland for transshipment to the United Kingdom. Finally, the third main prohibition prevents the arming of American merchant vessels. These three sections are the ones being mentioned by administration leaders who advocate amendment rather than outright repeal of the neutrality laws. The controversy, they point out, is not purely academic. Elimination of the three conflicting prohibitions would achieve the immediate goals desired by the President 
and his advisers, without destroying other sections of the neutrality statute which are still useful. Repeal of the entire act, on the other hand, would necessitate the reenactment of these useful measures, such as the provision for licensing of shipments of arms and ammunition to foreign countries. In other words, revision can achieve in one step what repeal could do only in two. It may be asked whether the remaining restrictions could be abolished or relaxed by further executive action. The President has some discretion in declaring the existence of a state of war and in defining the combat areas barred to American ships. But the executive has had to ignore realities in order to take advantage of these powers. As far as the official position of the United States is concerned, Japan and China are not at war in the Far East, and consequently we still send supplies and implements of war to the Chinese forces. Nor has the President found that a state of war exists between Germany and the Soviet Union. So last week, a United States delegation in Moscow completed arrangements for sending extensive American aid to Russia. After Italy's decisive defeat in Ethiopia this year, President Roosevelt rescinded his proclamation of a combat zone in the Red Sea, and United States merchant vessels now carry supplies to allied forces in the Near East. Several weeks ago, the United States Attorney General ruled that American ships would henceforth be permitted to enter any British overseas territories and possessions except those expressly mentioned in the President's neutrality proclamations. With these measures, however, the executive has just about exhausted the practicable use of discretionary powers under the law. Theoretically, the president might still alter the recognized combat areas so as to allow American ships to enter Russia's Arctic ports of Murmansk and Archangel. Similarly, a neutral shipping lane to Ireland might be proclaimed. But the present battle lines in Russia make it increasingly impractical to supply Soviet troops from the north and a neutral lane to Ireland would be so hopelessly out of conformity with realities that an ensuing series of embarrassing incidents might be taken for granted. It is therefore apparent that the basic contradictions between the Neutrality Act and the declared policy of the United States cannot be removed by executive action alone. As Chief Executive and Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces, the President has extraordinary powers but certain crucial decisions, including the right to declare war and to ratify peace treaties, are reserved for Congress. President Roosevelt, in his article last week in Collier's, conceded that the loss of American ships, lives, and property in neutral or combat areas would be most likely to, to cause this country's eventual invo involvement in war. Before risking any final critical incidents, the President is awaiting legislative participation in his decisions. Several government spokesmen, including the President and Senator Connolly last Monday night, have referred to the two undeclared wars which the United States fought with Napoleonic France and the Barbary Pirates. In both cases, it should be noted, Presidents Adams and Jefferson found it expedient to obtain congressional sanction before ordering the use of force. The President is constitutionally empowered to make extensive commitments during a period of crisis, but he finds it advisable to obtain the approval of Congress which, in the last analysis, will be called upon to ratify or reject his policies. Mr. A. Randall Elliott, Research Associate of the Foreign Policy Association, was today's speaker in the America Looks Abroad series. If you would like a free copy of this talk, address your request to the Foreign Policy Association, 22 East 38th Street, New York City. 
You will be interested in knowing of an all-day forum of the Foreign Policy Association on American Foreign Policy, Our First Line of Defense, to be held at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel on Saturday, October the 25th, when leaders of American foreign policy will discuss this subject. Next Sunday at this time, you will hear another speaker in the America Looks Abroad series. This is the National Broadcasting Company, RCA Building, Radio City, New York. Thank mm-hmm. you.